quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Early in the history of The Axe Files, I sat down with then-Senator Clara McCaskill to talk about her life and career. Uh, Now she's former Senator Clara McCaskill, having lost her bid for re-election in the fall, but still full of interesting observations about the process, the state of the Democratic Party, the Senate, and the country. She's been a fellow at the Institute of Politics this winter, so I thought I'd take advantage and sit down with her and sort of catch up on what her thoughts are today. Claire McCaskill, great to see you again. Great to have you at the Institute of Politics. The last time we sat down together like this was in episode 16 of the Axe Files, way back in the prehistoric times of 2016, early in 2016. I can't believe it was that long ago. Yeah, I know. Seems time, like time flies when you're having fun, you know? <laughs> but, um, uh, and so I'm not going to go and rehearse all of what we talked about there because there's been a lot of water under the bridge since then. And that's what I want to talk to you about. About uh, I th- I'm not sure at that time that you had formally said whether you were going to run for re-election or not. I don't think you had. No, I was really struggling with it. Yeah. So let I, that's where I want to pick this up. Tell me uh, about what you were struggling with with and what the decision-making process was and did the election of Donald Trump tip you one way or another in deciding to run for re-election? Yeah, I, you know, I was really, um, I, there's, all the jobs I've had, you know, two terms has been the maximum I've ever done. Now, I don't know if this is a character flaw or if this is a good thing, but I have a tendency to want to move on. Let's do. Could be healthy. Yeah, I think so. And and I I was getting to the point that I I wasn't sure that I was going to have the I have a lot of energy in that my I job. Know. Yes, I know. And I didn't ever want to get to the point that I was mailing it in. I I really wanted to be in a situation where every day I was just after it, after it, after it, and I was feeling tired of the grind. Uh, the schedule is just brutal. Uh, in the Senate. I'm not complaining. I was blessed to be there. But the facts are the facts. You've got to get on a plane and, and fly. I flew southwest every Monday morning. I flew home Thursday nights. I had to work most weekends. I have a large family. I have um, almost 12 grandchildren now. 11 and 12 <laughs> will be here any minute. Um, so so if, I, you cut this, if you cut this conversation short, we'll know why. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> And so I was struggling with whether I was going to run again. Now, you know, Schumer didn't want to hear it. Oh, you're running, you're running. And everybody, oh, you're running, you're running. But I really seriously, my husband and I had long conversations about whether or not it was a good idea if I ran again. Let me ask you a question about that. Uh, Obviously, you weren't successful. Um, Do you think that that ambivalence on your part was something that 
like unbeknownst to you, was something that people could read? Or another way of saying it is, do you think that people tire of their elected officials? I think people tire of their elected officials. Um, When Trump won, I really felt that I couldn't walk off. I just couldn't walk off. There, there really wasn't anybody. I tried uh, to talk to others that would have been, you know, Jason Kander would have been a great candidate, um, but no one was willing after what happened in Missouri in yeah, 2016. Yeah, and we just point out Trump won by, by what, 19 20. points? Yeah, 20 al- points. Well, almost 20. Yeah. It's just short of 20. And, you know, so it was like nobody really wanted to, to, to step right up and go, oh, yeah, I want to run as a Democratic candidate in a state that Trump won by 20. Yeah. So I really felt like I had to. Um, I did Was the ambivalence something that people sensed? I, I Once I get into something, I'm pretty intense, and I worked really hard at the campaign. You don't do 50 town halls in one year if you're just warming up. I mean, 50 town halls in one year is a lot. So I was really in it. I was trying as hard as I could. I will say that, um, you know, I I do think that the fact I'd been around so long was a big problem. You know, I make the joke at in my stump and on in town halls that, you know, can you imagine if they're wheeling you into the operating room and the nurse leans down and goes, I got really good news for you. This surgeon has never done this operation before. You'd go, whoa, whoa, back the gurney up, back the gurney up. But in politics now, having absolutely no political resume is much better than having a long one. And it is something I think we've got to kind of come to grips with. I'm a be- I was a better senator because I was a prosecutor. I was a much better senator because I'd been an auditor. But all of that experience in the eyes of voters added up, well, you know, she's been there long enough. She hasn't solved anything. Were you a better senator for having been in the Senate uh, for 12 years? I think I was. I think I was a much better senator. I I think I I learned a lot from my colleagues in those years. I think I learned on how to be effective in terms of using the committee process to do effective oversight. That was kind of my main deal. Mm-hmm. I did a lot of oversight, a lot Consistent of contracting. with your experience as an auditor, Correct. as a prosecutor. Correct. So. I mean, I really went after it in hearings. And and um, so, it, you know, I think it did make me a better senator the time I spent as a senator. You know, I think from there's such jaundice about Washington and about politics now that I think uh, that people suspect that learning how to navigate the system is learning how to swim in the swamp. Uh, And that's part of it that just by dint of participating in a process that has been so tainted in people's minds uh, that you you become tainted yourself. I think that's one of the things these presidential candidates are going to have to deal with. Honestly, Um, being of Washington to many voters is just right at the very starting gun is a disqualifier. Yeah, I think that's right. You know, uh, it's also true that Barack Obama was only the third U.S. senator in like 120 years uh, to get elected. And I don't know whether it was because of that that we just discussed or whether people just didn't see senatorial experience as presidential uh, experience. But, you know, it was Warren Harding, John F. Kennedy and Barack Obama. It wasn't that common a thing. And one of the reasons why so many senators are running now in part is because Democrats lost so many governors, which used to be the wellspring 
of presidential candidates that um, there's there's this void that is being filled. So you see senators running and mayors running and, you know, uh, and a couple of former governors and so on. Um, how did Trump, you talked about the 50 town hall meetings. What were those like post-Trump? And um, what did what did you see there that said, man, this is going to be a tough road to hoe? Well, you know, I'd, I've done town halls all through my time in the Senate. And when most of my colleagues were hiding under their desk after we passed the ACA, I said, nope, nope, we're going out there. Now, I will tell you it was not as bad as the town halls during the ACA. Yeah, I mean, the town hall I'll never forget is when – we had a, a, a terrific young minister do a prayer at one of the town halls after the ACA. He got booed in the prayer. So you know <laughs> that's, when the, prayer, that's when the prayer is booed, you know it's going to go not, downhill yes. fast. You know how to read the crowd. You know, huh? It's like, okay, <laughs> buckle in. This will be a hot one. Um, we didn't have anybody boo um, at, the, at the opening gun um, at these town halls. And, yeah, there were some very strong Trump supporters there, and they were – uh, you know, in my face, uh, but with Midwest politeness, I don't, it never, I never felt like any of them were out of control. Uh, and, you know, I think that there is untapped in this country is the recognition that if you show up and you legitimately open the doors to anybody who wants to come in and you legitimately answer any question they want to ask you, there's a certain goodwill that springs from that that kind of takes some of the edges off. They could see. I mean, one of the things I do in my town halls is I ask right at the front who is positive they will never vote for me under any circumstances. And then you ask them to leave? No. (laughs) They all raise their hands, whoever they are, and then I ask them to hold the basket and draw the questions. Mm -hmm. So at the very get-go, I hand the basket of questions to somebody who can't stand me. And that kind of helps take the edge off. So we really – I mean, there there was some – you know, there were people that said, why aren't you voting to impeach him uh, at, at most of the town halls? And then there were a lot of people that said, why aren't you supporting him? Why are you fighting him? This thing that you uh, say about showing up uh, reminds me of uh, the Beto O'Rourke campaign in Texas. And, the, you know, there was this – it struck me that it wasn't issues that was uh, that were propelling him forward so much as the fact that he went everywhere, was holding these town hall meetings – was showing people respect by listening to them. And I think um, part of what has so um, roiled our politics is this sense that people were being disrespected and uh, the act of just showing up and hearing people out and explaining your point of view, even if it's not their point of view, probably gets you somewhere down the field, you know. Listen, my state did not reelect me, but I will fight anyone who wants to look down their nose at the people of my state who voted for Donald Trump. Um, You know, I get it. There's an angst and a frustration about whether or not people are, um, you know, playing by the rules, working as hard as they know how, they're not really getting ahead. Uh, They can't afford to retire. They can't afford to send their kids to college. And, you know, everybody who runs for president says they're going to change things. Our friend ran for president on a message of change. And things haven't really 
change that much for a lot of these folks. And they really, and I think Trump got that. I mean, I don't think he gets a lot, but I think he gets marketing. And I think he tapped that vein of frustration and anger. And if somebody is frustrated and angry that they don't think the world is giving them a fair shot based on their hard work, you need to listen to that and understand it and not look down your nose at it and call them names and say they're all racist or they're all this or they're all that because it's just not true. I'm not saying there aren't some bad apples in the crowd, but there are in every crowd. There yeah. are in some of the crowds that support Democrats. Yeah. So, you know, I, people may get upset that I'm saying this and say that's a false equivalency, but I know these people that voted for Donald Trump and and some of them. I don't care much for and don't like much, but a whole bunch of them I get. And I hate it when people in Washington, especially people from bright blue states, just said, well, the only people voting for Trump are stupid people. No, that's not true. Yeah, That's just not true. Yeah, I have a a place in rural Michigan, and my neighbors uh, all had Trump signs in their yards. And I know for a fact that some of them voted for Barack Obama because they wanted change. Um, You know, one of my concerns is that and we'll see, but you know, change. Uh, we have this economy that's being kind of turbocharged by uh, by uh, technology and globalization, and it's changing so rapidly we can't really get our arms around. It. And at the same time, we've got a divided country and a system that's meant to go slowly when the country's divided. So you've got this warp speed change and uh, a government that is not terribly agile in responding to some of these challenges. I worry about that alienation growing. I agree. And I think, you know, what Trump did that I really can't stand is that he peddled the fact that the problem was the Mexicans and the Muslims instead of the microchip. Mm-hmm. I mean, the microchip has a lot to do with this, even under the the tax cut they passed. Uh, I mean, a lot of the money that these corporations are realizing is going for new equipment. Well, you know what that new equipment's doing? It's yeah, causing automated. them to need less people. Yeah. So, you know, it's not as if this they're solving this problem of uh, advanced technology requiring fewer people to do manufacturing and soon many jobs in the service industry, Yeah, driving a cab. So it is, a, <coughs> I think it is an issue for our time. And it's one that the president kind of did a, did a fast when he did a bait and switch. He convinced everyone that this had to do with 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 Mexicans and of course that's ludicrous. Yeah, and and the the efficacy of that strategy was most pronounced in places where there really weren't many immigrants. Correct. Which is um uh, you Except know, in some agricultural communities, right? Um, there are certainly a lot of workers that come in on a seasonal basis. Um, I know that's true in my state, uh, especially in the Boot Hill. And are, were those? But they weren't taking jobs that other people were Correct. doing. Correct. And were they resented in those communities? No, no. Um, in fact, I had a lot of uh, the farmers in the Boot Hill just kind of say to me, "Hey." You know, can you help out this, you know, this guy's been coming up here to work my farm for a number of years, and now it's gotten a lot harder. I can't get enough of the visas that we need for the workforce. And so, you know, um, but the majority of the people, particularly in, in, in rural America, I think, were willing to 
buy into this notion that somehow Trump was going to bring back manufacturing in a in a way that would replicate the 50s and 60s and 70s and that because somehow- some of it has the there there is more manufacturing the economy was growing when he became president it may be that you uh, 1.5 trillion dollars in tax cuts and some of that is going to you know it's going to wind up yeah uh, but i i would say in my state there's a lot of um pain in in small manufacturing because mm-hmm. of the input costs of steel and aluminum because of, because the, of tariffs. the tariffs yeah yeah um you uh as in every campaign uh, you, you there are things that happen that are unpleasant uh you got caught up in a deal early on i think about the use of you you were using your private plane and you were on an rv tour and and all of that stuff. I mean, how irritating is that? Um, I mean, I assume that there's a good explanation for what you were doing. Well, yeah, it was just kind of, you know, but it, I can't really complain because I've done this a long time and I know sometimes the smallest things get blown out of proportion. And they were looking for a way to make me not of Missouri. Well, see, this is where I was going because um, there's not just, it's not just economic. There's a cultural thing. Right. Uh, that the elites are kind of l- looking down on people, and you, one of your strengths as a candidate has always been, you're like you're you're right. all Missouri, and, and and they wanted to chip away at that. Yeah, and so um, you know, I, I don't think you're you are flying around and looking down your nose at people if you do 50 town halls. My opponent hadn't been in probably even half the counties in the state. Josh Hawley, who got elected. Yeah, he wasn't going anywhere. He wasn't wasn't going anywhere and answering questions. But that's not the point. The point is that, you know, who we should have published with the press release the schedule because then it would have been obvious that I added on a stop for veterans – I wanted to do a veteran's stop up in St. Joe, and I couldn't make it with the original schedule. So I said, well, I'll just take the plane up to St. Joe and then meet you guys in Columbia, and we'll finish up. We were on the RV for the vast majority of the time. I mean, probably seven-eighths of the time we were on the RV. Mm-hmm. But the fact – and by the way, anybody who saw where I was, and it was all – everybody knew, the press knew where I was. You could tell I couldn't have driven it. It wasn't like we hit it. You couldn't get from Columbia to St. Joe in the time that we had – um, but so it, it is kind of a parable of modern campaigns. It is a know? parable of modern, modern campaigns. We shouldn't have called it an RV tour, or we should have said we're going to do an RV tour, but she's going to add on one stop at no expense to her campaign or taxpayers uh, so that she can see veterans in St. Joe. You, uh, But I think you're right. The point was to make everybody un- uh, remember or recall the fact that you, you, your, your husband is a very successful businessman, and you have access to a plane, and it was to, it was a cultural point. It's like you you know you're, you're David. You're here's the around. bottom line: if my my husband should is in the dictionary for what the Republican Party believes in, his first job out of college was in a steel mill. He has created great wealth and thousands of jobs in a free market system where he's been smart and worked hard and succeeded beyond anybody's wildest dreams. Now. If he were married to a Republican woman senator, he would be perfect. But because he was married to me, he was a tax cheat and son of a bitch. 
You know, <laughs> I mean, he was like, you know, a bad guy. And that's one of the hardest things about my campaigns is that how rough they were on him. Now, in the grand scheme of things, I'm blessed. We have a great family. We're close. And I trust he'd say it was it's worth the trouble. He'd, he would say that. He <laughs> would say that because he's a wonderful man. Mm-hmm. But it was terribly unfair what yeah. they did to him. And they were always trying to do oppo dumps on him. I mean, it got so bad in this he's, campaign. He was in the nursing home industry, which was, is always- Was a, a long time yeah, ago, yeah. you know, like more than a decade ago. Hasn't been anywhere near him for years and years. But it got so bad this time that they had a woman calling around to his former women employees- trying to get them to say bad things about him. Hmm. I mean, that's how bad it was. He started getting calls at his business from women who used to work for him saying, you know, somebody is calling us, trying to get us to say that you were inappropriate with us. And, you know, you should just know they're doing this. That's how bad it's gotten. Speaking of of charges of inappropriate behavior uh, with women, one, one of the issues that crested at the end of the campaign was the Kavanaugh hearings. And you've spoken about this. You you feel as if uh, if you had a shot, that this was a, a momentum stopper. It, it, it kind of crystallized in people's minds why Washington sucked, how bad it looked from a distance. I mean, make no mistake about it. Whether you thought Kavanaugh was a great nominee or a terrible nominee, it was messy. It was chaotic, and it was hard. I mean, this was a very difficult situation. So, you know, had we had all of this happened earlier and with just one hearing, and, you know, it still wouldn't have been easy, but it wouldn't have kind of gotten people off the couch. Our chance of winning in Missouri was about motivation, and we were running ahead in motivation. We were doing really well. People were motivated. We had an amazing amount of volunteers. We knocked on more doors than any other campaign in the country. Uh, it was really a motivated group of people in Missouri that wanted to reelect me. They weren't that motivated. I mean, they were running right. about 10 or 15 points behind us on motivation. Then Kavanaugh happened. Then the ca- caravan optics. And then Trump came and camped out. And those three things got everybody off the couch that was in rural Missouri. And so we did, had record turnout, record vote totals. Anybody who says we didn't do well with the progressives doesn't have any idea what they're talking about. We did great in all the blue areas of Missouri. Record setting, historic. But so did they in the country. Mm-hmm. And that's what happened. He got them motivated and got them off the couch. Um, was the, you know, it's interesting to me. Um, you always look at these things through different lenses, through you know, and through the lens of sort of the Washington, uh, certainly the, the 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 community that was opposed to Kavanaugh through the eyes of Democrats that looked like a, um, a a real problem for Republicans, and then uh, almost after uh, after uh, Blasey Ford testified. Uh, almost on a dime, Lindsey Graham and others went after Democrats for essentially politicizing the thing, holding this information and so on. And that's like a formula in our politics now is that you partisanize these debates in a way that takes them away from the issue at hand. And they were pretty effective at it in, in sort of weaponizing that whole thing to their advantage. Well, I think... Um, now, there was a 
backlash, I should say, when you look at what happened in the suburban areas or and among women, I think there was a there was a backlash, but in terms just in terms of motivating some of these rural voters, particularly men, uh, pretty effective. I think that one of the things that I hope that whoever is our presidential nominee uh, can convey to the American people is that it's important we understand why people feel differently than we do. I mean, this is important conversations we need to have. Uh, there were so many Missourians that believed this was a political hit job that was unfair to this guy. It was high school. And there was, it was just, you know, his word against her word. Now, as a former sex crimes prosecutor, it's way more complicated than that. But you have to realize how people felt about it. Mm-hmm. And um, the way it all came down... They were helped in thinking that by... Like Rush Limbaugh of Cape Girardeau. Of course. And, of course. Uh, and Fox News. Of and- course. Of course. But I just think the biggest mistake we made was when the letter came in from Dr. Ford. Uh, the FBI, as you well know, David, they do a lot of work confidentially on background checks. There is a whole lot of stuff they uncover that is confidential in background checks. You can trust the FBI to keep a background check confidential. They they should have shared it with the FBI right away and said, this woman wants to remain confidential, but we want you to have this. And um, the fact that that didn't happen just lent to the appearance that this was a kneecapping at the 11th hour, which I, made it harder. I guess the explanation for that was that she didn't want to come forward. Is that... Well, she wouldn't have had to come forward. Mm-hmm. But th- the fact that they didn't tell anybody about the letter until the 11th hour, I think, was a real problem. I think it was a mistake we made on our side. Mm-hmm. You mentioned the caravan, um, which was torqued up to 11 on a scale of 10 by the president rallies in your state and every state before the election, and then kind of silence the day after Election Day, but you feel it was uh, effective. Oh, yeah. I I mean, people who, you have to understand wherever I go in Missouri that's not in the greater Kansas City or St. Louis area, it's Fox News on TV. And it was on a loop, you know, and it was visual. Mm -hmm. And those visuals were powerful. I mean, it did kind of look like they were going to storm our border. Just from the, the videotape that was being shown, of the, and some of it was B-roll that was played over and over again, of when the crowd looked the largest and so forth. But be that as it may, those optics um, were, were really helped. I mean, somebody said, did, did Trump organize the caravans? No, I, I, I'm sure more than a few people... Yeah. Because uh, I know they helped, they helped him in a number of states. And you, uh, explain to me what happened here. You ran a radio ad at the end of the campaign to try and neutralize uh, that issue that you got criticized for? Yeah, I, I mean, there were some things going on. I said, I think the phrase that really torqued people was when I said crazy Democrats. Mm-hmm. Somebody in the ad, ad said she's not one of those. Cra- it was a conversation between oh, two see. people. She's not one of those crazy Democrats. And so, of course, you know, people f- outside of Missouri got all. My, took a little umbrage. Yeah, like who's a crazy Democrat? And I quickly pointed out we had a state senator in Missouri that called for the assassination of the president on her Facebook page. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a crazy Democrat. 
You know, I think crazy Democrats are people who go into restaurants and get in people's faces and torment them when they're sitting in a restaurant with their family. I think that's just a little crazy. I I don't have any problem with defining it. I wasn't saying that all progressives were crazy or anything like that. I was just trying to convey that I'm somebody that is happy to work in the middle. I'm happy to be part of a compromise to actually move the needle. Great ideas are great ideas, and they move us in the right direction. But America's gotten pretty cynical about proposals that don't happen. And that cynicism is what breeds an electoral result like Donald Trump. So talk, uh, you're, you're obviously sort of leading into uh, an issue of where we are now. You're looking with interest, as everyone is, to 2020. Uh, what do you see in the early stages of this presidential race? And I should point out that many of the people who have stepped forward so far uh, are colleagues of yours, old colleagues of yours. It's very weird because I know so many of them so well. And I know them both personally and in the context of their work. I know their work ethic. I know their character. And it is very hard for me to pick a favorite. I do think this process, in a strange way, because I think Donald Trump will unite us at the end. So in a way, I think this is going to be good because you understand acutely what these things are like. You know what you have to fight through. This is a huge thicket yeah. that a candidate's going to have to fight through. I'm a podcaster now. Yeah, right, <laughs> right. Because first of all, all these young people here at the University of Chicago, it's like they think I have the secret sauce. Who's going to win? Tell me who to work for. Yeah. And you know, we don't know. We know that it's going to be hard. They're going to have to fight through a lot. When somebody pulls ahead, everybody's going to pile on. How do they handle that? How do they do with grassroots fundraising, which I think is going to be huge this time? Um, and, you know, a year from now, I think the, the two or three that are really in contention will be obvious. And then it's going to be a matter of can they appeal to the voters in the five states that Trump won that he had no business winning? Um, the the I, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, uh, Democrats, um, now I'm going to get I'm going to get dogged for saying this, but I say this with affection, you know, there's a lot of hand-wringing. That's it's a favorite thing. Right. And now the hand-wringing is there's no who's the there's no candidate. There's no we don't know who the candidate but the process is really important. I mean, Barack Obama would not have been the nominee of the Democratic Party had he not run the entire gauntlet in 2008 because people sensibly understood here's a guy who was four years out of the Illinois State Senate and we want to see him handle all of the pressures and challenges. Everything of, from Reverend Wright to every living room in Iowa. And had he not passed those tests, right. he would not have been the nominee. And, uh, you know, in, in 2016, there was less of that. You know, Bernie Sanders became a formidable candidate, a challenger to Hillary Clinton, but she was pretty much, there was a consensus that she was going to be the nominee. You supported her mm -hmm. uh, fairly early on. Um, the process is valuable. The process is important. It is a lengthy tryout for, and I think for, for the hardest job on the planet. It is a lengthy tryout, and this election will be so much different than 2016 because... You know, one of the things that kills me when people say, well, if Bernie would have been nominated, he would have won. Well, there was a reason there was no negative 
on Bernie. The Republicans were fine with Bernie taking the nomination. Um, we're not going to see that in this presidential cycle. There will be a lot of negative on a lot of these candidates mm-hmm. and how they handle those moments when the oppo research gets dumped on them, when something as unfair as, oh, she took her own plane at her own expense to just see one more stop of veterans, you know, that that became a touchstone of negativity for my campaign just tells you how weird it can get yeah. and how you handle those moments, whether you can, ups- and how, how well... How well do you get organized? Right. How good is your organization? How Do you attract the talented people? Do you keep them there? Do, are they treated so that they feel like they're part of something bigger and they want to go all in? So I think this is going to be um, – and frankly, I think the if I had to handicap anything, I would say I'd give a little bit of a nod to those candidates who've been through rough campaigns before. Mm-hmm. Um, if, you've, if you've not had millions of dollars of negative run against you ever – uh, it, it feels awful when it happens. And knowing that feeling and knowing that you can fight through it and survive, um, I think that gives an advantage to to a few of the candidates who've had tough campaigns. Yeah, and I, and I think also having the experience of having to seek votes in a diverse state Correct. with uh, vastly different kinds of populations is is valuable. Uh, so... Uh, but in, in terms of Bernie Sanders, just let's stop there for a second. He raised $6 million in the first 24 hours of his candidacy. People wondered whether he had anything left in his tank. Uh, that's a lot of money to raise in, in one day. I'll predict that that record will be smashed time and time again in this campaign by uh, maybe him, but also other candidates. Mm-hmm. It's a new day. Um, you know, you're looking at somebody who was, frankly, not the favorite of the, the online wing of our party in terms of the progressives. We did, and we had 280,000 donors. Our average contribution was 51 bucks, and we raised $40 million. Mm-hmm. Now, if somebody would have told me 20 years ago that that was going to happen, I would say, what are you smoking? That's not going to happen. Um, but it did. And you look at Beto. $80 million. Or if somebody would have told you what they were smoking was legal. Exactly. Been, both. Yeah. Both. And mm-hmm. so I just think that this online, you know, no question Bernie has a loyal group of supporters who are used to giving him $10, $20, $30, and they believe in him. And they're showing up right now at the beginning of his announcement. But I don't think that means that he is going to dominate online fundraising. I think it will end up being uh, a, a much more equal process between several front runners before it's all said and done. You mentioned uh, that he didn't have negative run against him in that campaign. Um, he he also had a clear path in that he was the only challenger to Hillary Clinton. He had a united kind of progressive right. path. There are other candidates in the race now who uh, Elizabeth Warren, uh, maybe Kamala Harris, uh, and others who will Cory Booker. Kristen Gillibrand. Kristen Gillibrand. I mean, she's voted no on every single Trump nominee. I don't think she even bothered to look at bios. I think she just decided, I'm against everything this president stands for, end of discussion. Yeah. Including every cabinet nominee he's made. Yeah. You don't, you, you're not... You're, you're not offering that in an approving way, I sense. Well, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not disapproving of it. I'm just saying it's a fact that there are a number of candidates that are running hard to the left. Yeah, so th- this is where I was leading before because you were um, 
you were talking about the ability to kind of reach um, reach the the middle of the electorate. Uh, are you concerned that the that the the campaign will take the party to this is of course a Republican mantra at this moment, which is that the Democratic. You heard Trump's uh, State of the Union yeah. speech. You're a commentator now. You heard his State of the Union speech, and you know his basic argument. He made his positive argument for himself, and that Democrats are socialists, radical on abortion, believes in believe in open borders. That's the campaign that he's going to run. Right. There's no question. I mean, we're going to hear a lot about socialism. So I think whoever is our nominee better hit it head to head. And I hope that everyone realizes that Medicare for all sounds wonderful until you explain to people that means they have to give up their insurance that they love at their workplace and get whatever insurance the government says they can have. Now, that's going to feel... That's going to make Obamacare look like a very light touch, because <laughs> all Obamacare said is, you know, we need you to buy insurance, mm-hmm. um, and you know, you must buy insurance. I shouldn't say we need you because it was right. a mandate; you had to buy it, and that was what was so unpopular. Right. Was a government mandate. That's what made it so unpopular in many, many states in this country. So I do think that our candidates need to be careful about being. Um, about getting so far out there on some of these issues that they can be purloined with the the socialism label to the to the extent that the president's going to clearly make that the meat. Well, whatever they say, he's going to try and hang right hang it on them. Uh, and um, I guess you don't want to hazard any. You don't want to um, dissect the people who are out there already. Yeah, you know, I'm I'm going to try not to do that um, because first of all, who cares what I think? Um, second of all, wait a second, we're trying to get people to finish this podcast. Do I know, wanna... I know, but I I mean, I really don't think my opinion of all the candidates is something that is at the top of everybody's list. And I really want to see. I mean, it's like asking me to fill out my bracket for <laughs> next year's tournament, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. For 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 2020, not 2019. I mean, I could do a, a halfway decent job with my bracket right now. For this year, but not for next year. So let's wait and see this time next year, you know, who who has done well, who has performed well, who has withstood the pressure, who has raised the money, who does well in these debates in June. All of that matters. I hope you don't feel obligated to put Mizzou in the final four. No, my God, no. You know, bless their hearts. Um, (laughs) Mizzou is not going to be in the final four this year. Now, if we could get one of the Porter brothers back, but um, so far we've we've uh, struggled. This is the kind of candor retirement allows you. Yes, to tell the truth. I love Mizzou, Mizzou, but they're not going to be in the final four. Uh, Talk to me about uh, in uh, we're we're, uh, recording this a week before uh, we expect the Mueller report to go to the uh, the Justice Department, and then they will offer some sort of summary uh, of the report, or at least that's what we're given to believe. Um, what do you expect to happen on the Hill uh, when this thing lands? I think it depends entirely on what's in it. Um, but how? But what if? What if? I'll give you a hint. It'll yes. be very partisan. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> These are the kind of insights that I... <laughs> I knew you didn't have that, didn't have that figured out, so I thought I'd clue I, I, you in. I appreciate it. Um, you know, Lindsey Graham will have righteous indignation about, you know, this is nothing. And, 
you know, uh, Adam Schiff will be saying uh, that there's so much more. There's so much more we don't know. Uh, we need to know more. And, you know, the American people will probably um, split the difference, I'm guessing. Mm-hmm. And many of them will believe that, uh, you know, clearly if he's going to release it next week, it's hard for me to imagine that there's going to be an impeachable offense that will be contained in it. But we'll see, maybe. Mm-hmm. And um, what was your sense of what was going on there with Trump and his kind of peculiar behavior behavior relative to Putin? Was it just potentate envy, or I, I I think that that I think there is a lot of if you look at his business career, um, the Russians have have been a part of it, and. I think he didn't think he was going to win the presidency, and he saw this run for the presidency maybe as a way to, because he was the nominee, that he could get close to Putin and then have his way uh, in terms of doing deals in Russia. Um, I think he was totally lying about that he had no business interest in Russia, never had. Obviously, that's the case. So I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that he'd never gotten a deal in Russia and wanted a deal in Russia, and then he got elected, and I think he is taken by these strong personalities. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, it's the weirdest thing to me that he is cozied up to our enemies. I mean, I think of all the things that he has done, and I imagine what would have happened if Barack Obama had done those things. I mean, just Kanye West MFing in the Oval Office. Now, can you imagine <laughs> how heads would have exploded if Kanye West was in the Oval Office when Barack Obama was president and did an MF live on television? I mean, uh, Sean Hannity's head would have exploded. <laughs> but it was like, oh, well, you know, he's different. Yeah. And so the same thing with being friends with all these strong men. These are our enemies. He clearly doesn't get that part. And he believes this despot in North Korea who's a thug. He believes this thug in Russia over our own intelligence community, which, by the way, is almost all veterans. It's just amazing to me. Uh, you put the Saudis in the same category? I put MBS in the same category after what happened in Turkey when they murdered that that man, mm-hmm. um, I think. And do you think that there's a, there are business connections there that I help do. explain the behavior? I, and I think MBS is obviously a smart young man. He came over and made friends with Jared Kushner, and then he figured out very quickly what Donald Trump wanted. And I don't know if people remember, but that was Donald Trump's first foreign trip. I, yeah. And and what the visuals of that trip? They had billboards. I remember him wagging his sword. Yeah, they they had billboards everywhere with Donald Trump's face, roses thrown in his path. I mean, it was an extravaganza of celebration of a guy that loves adulation. So they just adulated all over his, you know what? And, and it was like so memorable to him that he was loved in Saudi Arabia. And MBS did that. And it was it was strategic and, and, and frankly, uh, worked for him because now he is refusing to do what every United States senator knows needs to be done. And there need to be sanctions imposed on Saudi for what they did, what MBS did in murdering a journalist. Um, and, you know, he's going to let it go. 
He's just going to let it go. And once again, can you imagine what would have happened if that would have been a Democratic president? I mean, he would be, they would call, they would be impeaching him. They would be impeaching him for treason. Talk about the institution of that that you just left, and um, you 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 said, uh, I think properly that when this thing lands, whatever the reaction is, it's going to be partisan, and that's part of what I think frustrates people, uh, civilians, uh, about our politics and about government is that it is all very predictable. Um, has it gotten worse in the? in the years that you've been there? And, and where is it all going? I mean, how do you penetrate that? Yeah, I think it has gotten worse. Um, the first year I was in the Senate, I, voted, I think I voted on 306 amendments. My last year in the Senate, I think I voted on 40. Um, because that's what the leader would allow on the floor. Yeah, yeah. What's happened is, and this door swings both ways. I mean, we did some of it. There was a little bit of, you know you know, which came first, the chicken or the egg, because Mitch was being an obstructionist to Harry Reid, not letting people through, mm-hmm. not letting nominees through. Harry finally threw in the towel and said, you know, we're going to go to 51 on, on certain judges. appointment, mm-hmm. on, on lower court judges and on, on the nominees for the cabinet. Um, when he was an obstructionist, Harry would fill the tree, which is a technical term for putting amendments already on a bill so nobody can offer an amendment. So we began down the path of having fewer amendments when Mitch was being an obstructionist. Well, then now the roles are reversed, and Mitch is gone down that path with a vengeance. Um, with we're, Literally, we're not debating and amending legislation anymore. The power has gotten so concentrated in the leader's office, it's made it much more like the House. Yeah. Um, the tax bill was written in Mitch McConnell's office. Uh, the bill to overturn uh, Obamacare was written in the leader's office. There is a handful of staffers on McConnell's staff that are basically in charge. And it is um, the committee process is not what it used to be. And this was John McCain's great lament and his final oration to the Senate. Right. And, and you know, hey— Every once in a while, the committees are working like they should, but not on any of the big stuff. It is either being blocked or it's being written uh, by the leader uh, in consultation. I mean, I know this on the tax bill. This is a true story. We are debating the tax bill, and there's going to be a manager's package. And a friend on K Street called my office and gave us the list of amendments. I went up to Ron Wyden, who's the ranking Democrat on the Finance Committee. I'm on the Finance Committee. I have this list. I said, Ron, this is the list that they're going to offer. He said, where did you get that? I said, well, K Street has it. So they were talking to K Street about what was going to be the final list of amendments. Yeah, the Uh K Street's the lobbyist. They were consulting with the lobbyists on the final list of amendments, and nobody on the Democratic side had any idea what was going to be offered. Well, that's that's messed up. That's also exactly what people suspect. Yeah, no yeah. question, and they're right. I mean, yeah. there's the, the lobbyists had much more say about that tax bill than any duly elected member of Congress that was a Democrat. So, give me a few things that would help change that. Well, uh, Citizens United would help if we got rid of that. That's Mitch, you know, that's Mitch McConnell's love letter to the country. Uh, he cares more about 
all kinds of dirty money, unlimited money in politics, and he cares really, I think, about any other issue. I mean, it's been his life's work right. to he, make sure that he could he open was the floodgates. Defended. He uh, was uh, the great opponent of McCain-Feingold Correct. back in the day. And- yeah. So I think that, I think we're going to have to figure out how to fix that. Um, I think it may have to be a constitutional amendment so that we can behave like other countries do around elections, where it is not he who has the most money, uh, has the ability to distort to the point that people just throw up their hands and don't know what to believe. Um, I think that that is that's a really important part of it. And I think the pendulum will swing back uh, to some appreciation for those people who are working, trying to get things done and not afraid of compromising. It, it, we are right now at a point where, you know, compromise is way out of fashion. But these things have, you know, history has many examples of where things have gotten very polarized and then there has been a coming together. It's going to take a good leader, and I hope that the, the president we elect in 2020, which is not Donald Trump, will be that kind of leader. Are you? Uh, do you miss the job? I miss parts of it. I am shocked. Obviously not the flights back and forth yeah, on am, Southwest. I am shocked how happy I am. Um, I, I, I was expecting much more of a hangover. I feel exhilarated by the freedom. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel exhilarated. I, I'm very fortunate in that I've got a strong, close family, and 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 opportunities are knocking on my door that are exciting and fun. So I feel really good about this next chapter. I feel good about trying to help others. I feel good about getting to work on some of the issues I really care about that I can actually work on outside of being a member of the government. You know, it, Josh Hawley reminded Missourians every 10 minutes. I've been doing it for 38 years. I was AOC's age when I got elected. <laughs> I was a shiny bright thing once upon a time uh, back in, 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 the, in the 80s. Um, so I, this is, I'm fine and I'm happy. And I, do I miss being able to cross-examine people in hearings and really getting it? Um, you know, getting the point across. I loved oversight hearings. I loved doing that. Yeah, I miss that. I miss my friends. I miss the collegiality of it. And by the way, I did have lots of friends that were Republicans. Mm-hmm. I miss both kinds, my Democratic friends and my Republican friends. But overall, this is good. Your Republican friends, uh, that would have been, if I were more artful, that would have been a great place to stop. But I just have to ask you, because you uh, mentioned it, your Republican friends, how candid were they with you about their feelings about what's going on now, about the president, about their own situation? Very candid. Very candid. And I, I will just tell you that uh, no less than a dozen Republicans have expressed to me uh, everything from disbelief to sheer panic over this president and how he's behaved in the Oval Office. I think one of the themes that runs through their comments to me is how unsettling it is that he knows nothing about the policy, that he really does shoot from the hip and has no intellectual curiosity about learning about the policy. I mean, I had one senator say to me, it was clear in the conversation about this topic that he had no idea what he was talking about. And everybody in the room knew it. And it really did feel like the emperor wears no, no clothes. You know, this is one of those moments where his staff was all st- sitting around going, uh-oh, 
he shouldn't be talking because he clearly doesn't know what he's talking about. That's scary to people. That yeah. that's that's the commander in chief. That's scary. And uh, but and yet they feel constricted in trying to do anything about it because he has enormous power to influence the base of the party. He does. They are trapped. Um, some of them have been more courageous than others. Some of them have been willing to. This vote coming up. This will be an incredibly big vote in history because it couldn't be clearer the than vote the about the uh, disapproval this. of his national emergency, uh -huh. the, the, the resolution of disapproval that the Senate must vote on. It cannot be plainer than the nose on someone's face that this is an unprecedented breach of constitutional norms. So all these guys, including my opponent, who ran as a constitutional conservative, if they actually say it's okay for what he did, uh, then, then I think the Congress has probably taken a blow that will take many years to recover from. Do you, if, if they did vote that disapproval, and we know from reporting that Mitch McConnell warned the president that that was a, a real possibility, he would veto it. Mm -hmm. And then it would require, I think, 34 of the Republicans to override his veto. Do you think that that's possible? Not possible, not probable. Mm -hmm. Possible, not probable. But boy, wouldn't that be a profile in courage? Wouldn't that be a moment in history if it happened? Yeah, but I always say uh, profiles in courage was a slim volume for a reason. It was know? a slim volume for a reason. It doesn't happen that often. Yeah, and, and you know, but they've got to really know. They all know that they're saying that the Congress doesn't have the power to appropriate. Because that's really what this is. He's just taking the power to appropriate away from Congress. It was interesting to watch McConnell come on the floor and announce he looked dyspeptic, I mean, more than usual, uh, saying that he... Uh, Low bar. <laughs> that he didn't... Um, that he was going to support this emergency order, having you know made clear that he didn't think it was a good idea. And he has held himself up as... a guy who believes in the Senate and the prerogatives of the, especially when there were Democratic presidents. Um, but that was like, a, it seemed like a total emasculation. It was, but he was thinking of the alternative. The alternative is the government shut gets down. shut down again, mm -hmm. and then their poll numbers continue to drop. And that was a disease everyone was suffering from, not just the president. The entire Republican Party right. was suffering. So if his goal is making sure he holds on to the majority in the Senate, he looked at the two paths. One, the government shut down. Not good for my members to get reelected. Or I can give a pass to the senators that are in tough states. They can vote to disapprove of what he's done to cleanse themselves. The Tom Tillises, the Joni Ernst, right. the Cory Gardners, all the ones that are in tough states. And we'll live to fight another day, and I can hold on to the majority in 2020. That's how his mind works. It's all about well, and protecting his members. Well, and I think down Pennsylvania Avenue, the president was thinking, you know, maybe the courts throw this thing out, but at least I look like I'm fighting. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll deal with that when it happens. But I can't kind of submissively uh, give in to the reality, which is I lost. Yeah, and I think people forget that McConnell doesn't look at this as a, a, a U.S. poll of how popular it. He's looking state by state. Mm -hmm. He's looking at the states where he wants to hold on to seats. And he's making a calculation clearly just to determine whether or not he can hold on to 51 seats in the United States Senate. Yeah. 
I, I, I think that's astute analysis. Um, you know, I, I just want to say you, you may have thought that you're not the bright, shiny thing anymore, but you've certainly been the bright, shiny thing around the Institute of Politics and um, have lit up a bunch of kids here and inspire them, and so grateful for that. Oh, listen, it's been a blast. And these kids, you, when I used to get depressed in Washington, I would ask my staff to bring me in the list of resumes of young people who had applied to work in the Senate. And it would always lift my spirits. And being here, uh, you can't be pessimistic about the future if you spend a lot of time around these bright young people that are thinking things through and care deeply. Uh, It's been great for me. It's a little bit, I don't really have a hangover from the loss, but if I did, this would be be the great antidote for it. Yeah. Well, we're lucky to have you. Thanks so much. You bet. Thanks, Axe. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit axefilespodcast.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or your favorite podcast app. For more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.